Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here for our first podcast of 2022 in Borrowdale, in the village of Rosswaite, with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. It's lovely to be back on the road again, or in this case, on the fell. Fabulous. Put us on the map, Mark. This is um, a wonderful valley. And of course, we're very close to Alfred Wainwright's finest square mile in Lakeland, I believe. Oh, yes. It is a magical place. We're just up from there, up the valley from there, at Rosswaite, in a wonderful setting. This is where fell walkers come to really appreciate the beauty of the Lake District right at its heart. That's right, we can look all around us here, up into the start of the high fells, the lovely wooded slopes. King's Howe there, Mark? King's Howe, part of Grange Fell, and uh, you see Great Crag, we're looking east. Now the clue to today's podcast, Mark, is if I look to my left, down the valley there, into the very jaws of Borodale, as you said, Castle Crag. Yeah, it's a startling feature. Uh, when you're in Keswick and you're looking up the lake, you see this jagged feature in silhouette, and you've got the reverse silhouette from here. But it sort of dominates that wooded congestion of the Derwent with crags either side. So it's quite an eye-catching and picturesque subject. A wonderful viewpoint of Derwent water, of course, and also the home for 50 years, more than 50 years, for the self-styled Professor of Adventure. Today's podcast is about... Millican Dalton. Fascinating character, this. Probably lots of our listeners will know the name. They might know a bit about the story. A gentleman born in Cumbria, migrated down south, and then comes back to the Lake District after finding smog in London, but also, crucially, that working life, that the nine-to-five really wasn't for him. And a pioneer as well in all kinds of ways, from lightweight walking gear to walking holidays, off-grid living, of escaping from societal expectations. Absolutely fascinating man, and we've got a superb guide for this podcast. Yes, Matthew Entwistle, who's written the story of the man himself. Yeah, great little book, highly recommend. He's been out for a few years now. But in those intervening years, Matthew's been able to do additional research, so has actually fleshed out the story even more. So I'm really looking forward to this. Just give us a little overview of the route. The conventional way up uh, is down the river, over New Bridge, I think it's called, a, a lovely cobbled bridge. Follow the River Dermot, and then you bear up the pasture bank, up onto uh, the quarried headland that is uh, Castle Crag. And then we're going to hunt for... Uh, Milligan's Cave. That'll be exciting. There we go. A journey to a Lakeland cave. What a great way to start the new year. Let's go and meet Matthew. I can see him there standing over by the uh, Rosswaite car park and start our country stride. We're strolling through by the yew tree farm opposite the flock in 
cafe, which at this time of day and this time of year is closed. We're in, right in the farming centre of the village of Rosswaite, a gorgeous spot with cobbled farmyards and so forth. And I'm now in the company of Matthew Entwistle. Great to see you, Matthew. Where do you come from and what's your story? Well, I'm from Blackburn, Lancashire. Uh, my story, I'm a fellow outdoors enthusiast like yourselves. I've spent a few years living in the Lake District in the past and then I returned back to Blackburn, spent a bit of time travelling around and now I work as a facilities manager in Accrington. You've got a particular fascination for this area. Well, the story of Millican Dalton, something I've first heard of uh, in the late 1990s. Millican inspired me because he was a former insurance clerk, sick of the usual nine to five, and that it accord with me. And I always would like to do something like that myself, so I did a bit of digging and one thing led to another. You clearly found sympathy and uh, understanding about this man. What particularly specific about this area that relates to Milligan himself? We're basically in the epicentre of Milligan's world, the area where he first set up camp and operated his business as a mountaineering guide. He first pitched his camp at Hylador Farm, operated from there for many years, until the inclement weather forced him to look for a more permanent base. He then settled in a cave on Castle Crag. Which you can't beat as a, a venue for a man who loved adventure and being at the heart of the mountains. Well, we'll discover far more about this really exciting person in the course of our walk, and we'll head off along the lane towards uh, Castle Crag. a lovely wander down the farm track, loose gravel, and we've come to a ford over the River Derwent, where the wanderer may wet their feet, but we'll not do that. We'll follow the track a little bit further. But we'll just stop just a moment, because I'd rather like to hear from you, Matthew, a little bit about the early years of Millican and his family. Millican was born in Nented, up on the moors near Alston. He was part of a family of five children, they had an outdoors life from birth. They were living amongst the rolling hills and big skies. And in that area, he nurtured a taste for the outdoors. And I think that stuck with him for life. That's what created Millican's outlook towards the outdoors. Yes, it's a majestic setting there, uh, right on the border with Northumberland, up in the Pennines. So what is the sort of the family business and what sort of education did he get? The family basically worked for the London Lead Company. They formed one of the first industrial villages in Britain, based around the, the lead mining works around Nented and Alston. There wasn't much other work around there, but it paid the bills, and Millican's granddaddy was a man of means, well respected in the community. All the children attended Nented Grammar School until around the age of 11. They were educated intensely, working 12-hour days, and each day they started at 7am and had to be prepared for a day in fear of the Lord. It was very much a Quaker education system, and they, they studied things from ornithology to Latin. It was quite a, an intense curriculum. The lifestyle was not to last because circumstances were changing. 
There were several occurrences which resulted in a decision to move out of the area. Firstly, we had the decline of lead mining in the area with cheap imports. Milliken and his family had already experienced a tragedy when his sister had died and his father also died when Milliken was aged seven. At this point, there wasn't much keeping the family in the region, so they decided to look further afield. Around 1881, Milliken's mother, Frances, she decided to move to London in a bid for uh, a better future. London itself at that time, which is often referred to as the Big Smoke, was an unpleasant environment. I don't think you could have had a bigger change. For years, they were used to those big skies, copious amounts of fresh air, and the next minute they found themselves amongst the hustle and bustle of London. It was a grim place at that time. There was the London smog that killed over 2,000 people in the 1880s. You plucked from your roots and then you transplanted in, in the city. Couldn't have been a bigger change in my opinion. I love it, this uh, approach by the river is uh, a pollarded uh, willow tree to our left and we got our first really good view of Castle Crag, the wooded slope and the cliffs behind it, uh, knitting halls and up by Tungill to our left. Let's get to Milliken and he's moved to the big smoke. He starts getting employment at the age of what, 18 or so? Around about 18. And what sort of job does he do? He finds employment within the city of London. Uh, at this time, it's the industrial powerhouse of the world. Jobs are very hard to acquire, uh, and generally, nepotism played a role. His brother, uh, Joseph, he already worked as an insurance clerk within the city, and I think he pulled a few strings and got Milliken a job as well at the Union Assurance Society on Cornhill. Cornhill, right. That uh, job gave him security, but he is aching for the outdoors. It certainly did give him security, but make no mistake, working in insurance was an incredibly dull job. Um, dotting I's and crossing T's all day long. Milliken, he quickly tired of this and wanted to get back to his roots and the outdoors. So after the family moved from Brownswood Road, they settled at Hyams Park. Epping Forest was on the doorstep. At this point, Milliken, he started looking for things, what he could do. He found an alpine rope and he started climbing out of his bedroom window and then hauling friends and neighbours up in alpine fashion to the dizzy nights. Um, of the turret in, in which his bedroom was based. The brothers, they then acquired a tent and then they started going and camping, lighting fires and um, getting a, a proper taste for outdoor adventure within the forest. This period from the 1860s onwards, there was an explosion of interest in the great outdoors and the catalyst was the expansion of the railways this allowed Milliken and his family to travel further afield. So they would come to the Lake District, they'd go to Snowdonia, and they'd go to Scotland. These, of course, were the places to be for the Victorian explorer. 
these were the Alps of Britain that people could get to on the train magically. They'd done what they could in Epping and then they were obviously uh, following the footsteps of the big names like Walter Parry Ascot Smith. The Tigers, they based themselves at the Waswater Hotel and Millican, whilst not part of that group, he were exploring the same areas and the same rocks. Um, it might not have been an, an exact contemporary at that time, but from the 1880s, they started travelling with their bikes loaded, um, well, overloaded with camping equipment and uh, probably too much equipment because they just had to push their bikes to destinations like Stiehead Pass, where they'd probably get there at midnight, not knowing exactly where they were, and then they'd pitch the tent there and then explore the area. Well, we're leaving the level path down the valley and go through a gate. Uh, we've started our ascent up a, a pasture that's got molehills or mardy warps, as they call them in Cumbria. And uh, uh, we're heading up towards the wooded slopes. It's time to think about Milliken Dalton's early life when he decided to make a change. He quit his job. Millican had become that engrossed in outdoor adventure that he began to feel like work was interfering with leisure. Millican said that I felt stifled. Day after day, I got to work at the same time, but this was not the life for me. He felt like a caged wild animal. He had no freedom of expression to live as he wanted. So he, he made the decision to throw in his job. The main trigger for this was Thoreau's Walden, He'd read the book and he developed a philosophy based on that and his own influences from, let's say, progressive movements of that time, mainly based on left-wing principles. What was the book, the Thoreau book? It was Walden. So Thoreau decided to go and live in, in a hut in Maine and just live a simple life. This inspired Millikan and he decided that he wanted to live a similar sort of life. It would give him the opportunity to live exactly as he wanted. He decided to look for a plot of land. He did this by placing advertisements in the press. Following on from the agricultural decline due to cheap imports, a lot of farms they were becoming bankrupt, so they decided to sell on plots of land. These became known as plotlands. Millican, he'd bought an acre of land in Billericay and basically he joined a simple life commune full of similar-minded people. We are talking about a man who's living not in a house but actually in a tent and this is year-round. Buckwinds at this time, there was no sanitation, there was no electricity. He just lived in this tent, he had a little veggie garden on the go. They're almost like shanty towns around the main towns. That's exactly what they were. They were developments which lay outside the standard planning process, but they were tolerated by local authorities and they were full of like-minded people wishing to escape the city. And their homes were built out of scrap wood, old caravans, corrugated metal, anything they could find basically. And then whilst others lived in tents, do we want to use the term off-grid living? Maybe it was a bit too advanced of a term um, for back then, but that's exactly what it was. Based on Thoreau, he will have built a philosophy of what he stood for and what he was going to do in life. 
vegetarianism, pacifism, individuality, self-sustainability. These were the key principles on which he, he built this philosophy and he had a passion for equal opportunities and the working man. He built his life around these because he said, civilization has nothing to offer me that I want. So instead of becoming a disgruntled member of conventional society, I prefer to do the honest thing, live as my instincts tell me I should. He just thought, I'm not doing this any longer. I'm living exactly how I want, according to my principles. Well, we'll now make the pull up onto the Castle Crag, which is a, a route followed by many through the year. It'll give us a chance to look at the setting that thrilled him so much and was uh, somewhere he came to frequently in the year. That was an easy little stepping stone way up the steep bank. We come onto the first shelf, short of the slate quarried upper tier of Castle Crag. Great moment to turn round and look through the Stonethwaite Valley. I can actually even see Helvellyn, which is lovely. And my eyes are caught by Rothwaite Cam, which um, uh, is a, quite an eye-catching little thing, like, like Helm Crag, like the Lion and the Lamb, named after, of course, the Cam stone at the top of a wall. Anyway, Millikan started to lead a, a really exciting life, but he actually organised the outdoor life for others, didn't he? He did, yes. Yeah. So once he quit his job, he then started using the power of the media and took to advertising in the press. So one of his first advertisements, or one of the first that I've found, is a little snippet in the Clarion. He started describing himself as Millikan Dalton, dealer in adventures, and from this point forward, he worked on a programme which he developed, but he also the, the marketing strategy. And this is the key, really, because this strategy was completely different than what anybody else offered at the time. And he used highly dramatic terms to describe his activities. They sort of made his holiday sparkle. They give um, a sense of adventure and uh, mystique something that wasn't available from, say, Leonard who set up the Cooperative Holidays Association. He was looking to get people out to the mill towns of northern England. He, he came from near me um, in Corn, Lancashire. He was bringing uh, the youth out to enjoy the outdoors. They just really promoted walking. Millican Dalton, he promoted a wide-ranging set of activities that distinguished himself from anybody else. Now, I stand to be corrected on this, but I've done a lot of research and I cannot find anybody else that promotes activity holidays. These, as far as I'm concerned, were the first. I'm absolutely intrigued by this. He was the first. It was a whole package he offered. I have examples of his work programme. One in particular is from 1913. He organised trains from London Euston. He arranged transport from... Um, whether it were on a pony and trap or whatever, he'd arranged that from Keswick Station to Hylador. And then Hylador would be the northern base. He also operated out of Rydal as well. So he'd have one week in Keswick, one week in Rydal. Typical itinerary. And don't forget, I said these are highly dramatic terms. So we would be shooting the rapids, fording a rapid river, 
getting lost in mist, dangling the precipice, gill scrambling in Lador Falls when in Spur or in Stanley Gill, and then also rock climbing on Nape's Needle, other popular routes of the day. Nothing too strenuous, don't forget. These are novices um, who signed up to his courses. It's, it's this composition of these activities which was really quite remarkable, really. Don't forget, most people, they were only used to the Wakes Weeks seaside holidays and they soon got tired of stripy deck chairs, dripping ice cream cones, donkey rides. They'd had enough of that. They were looking for something completely different. Who offered that? Millick and Dalton. He got them out of their humdrum daily lives and offered them, even just for a week or two, an escape from conventional living. They too could live Millican's lifestyle. So if he took people up Nake's Needle and threaded the needle, that was no mean thing to achieve, to actually give security in an environment that was really alpine. Of course, Nape's Needle is the icon of British rock climbing. First climbed by Ascot Smith in 1886, as I said earlier. This was on the bucket list for many would-be adventurers. You know, they had the man showing them the ropes. These were the quintessential items on the agenda. So we would also be going up Walker's Gully, Slingsby's Chimney, Mouse Gill. He would take these novices, who are obviously very scared, and show them the right way to climb safely. We have this perception of this man, a wonderful marketeer, and somebody who's able to introduce people to a, an amazing adventure world. But what did he look like? Also building on his extraordinary range of activities and his, his marketing campaign, he also developed an image, a brand for himself. He was well over six foot tall, bronzed by wind and sun. He was dressed in khaki or olive green army style coat. He started off in knickerbockers, but he soon developed onto the pair of shorts. And this is quite a key area, really, because Millican, believe it or not, rightly or wrongly claimed to have been the inventor of shorts. There's a bit of an argument about this because some people will also say that it was Baird and Powell who invented the shorts, but he certainly introduced them as functional sportswear. Most of Millican's clothes were homemade, very rarely finished. Um, he never wore any socks. He just wore boots, uh, the heavy hobnail boots. He made his own rucksacks, so he'd sport one of them on his back. And the icon of Millican Dalton, or the thing that made him instantly recognisable, was his trademark Tyrolean hat, adorned with a pheasant's feather. It's always a great pleasure to come to the top of Castle Crag and you're seldom, if ever, alone. It's a convivial gathering place of all sorts of folk who appreciate the easy ascent and the absolutely marvellous prospect you get from here. We're surrounded by large trees, um, probably were planted after the quarry ended, but there's a great chasm of a quarry, a slate quarry there, which is adorned with uh, little cairns that people find irresistible to make. It would be remiss not to refer to the majestic view looking north, looking down on Grange and Borodale, where you can see a stretch of the River Derwent in the woods. And the meadows beyond uh, lead to the great lake of Derwent Water, which inevitably reflects the distinctive profile of Skidder. The sweeping view to the right, moving round to the east, Mungristal Common, Blencathra, 
Waller Crag, Bleebury Fell, and then the great mass here of King's Howe. Over top the shoulder of that, uh, you can see um, High Seat, uh, Ether Knot, Brun Fell, and in the distance, yes, Helvellyn and Nethermost Pike, uh, Rosswaite Fell with Rosswaite Cam, Coombe Head and the top of Glaramara. You can just see uh, Esk Pike, Great End, Scorfell Pike, yes, in front of that, of course, Seafate Fell. But not only Scorfell Pike, but you can see Simmons Knot on Scorfell. And Base Brown and a little bit of uh, Green Gable coming round here to the great crags of Goat Crag and uh, Knitting Halls on High Spy and Maidenmoor and the very top of Cat Bell. So there, what a view. Well described, Mark. Uh, can I just add a couple of more spots that we're very familiar to Millican. I mean, he knew all these fells and mountains and dales himself. He would also bring his clients to the summit of Castle Crag and do exactly what you just did there. But a couple of favourites, we have Johnny Wood, which is directly in front of us now. We're just looking over the top of it, um, Rossweight to the left. And then just before that, we've got what is known as Charity Coppice with its secret waterfall a spindly drop of water that falls through there, um, but very much favourites of Millikan's. And then I'm just looking above Johnny Wood, and I'm looking at Coombe Gill, and we've got Dove's Nest Crag on there. This was one of Millikan's favourites, and this is one of the areas where he pioneered one of his climbs, Buzzard Chimney, in 1897. It was when rock climbing was started in earnest as a sport by Ascot Smith. So a very, very early uh, record. Dove's Nest, for those that you know, it's um, a geological phenomenon. A big hunk of a buttress that has slipped away from the, the rock face behind it and it created loads of chasms. These chasms offered opportunity for exploration and it was uh, like an indoor rock gym, basically, and Millican, he'd take his clients through there. He'd have to go through there with candles, and then he'd light newspapers and throw them down the, the chasms while they were inside to add to the excitement. Due to subsequent landslips, these caves are now closed, lost forever, basically. They were, they were an underground gem, something that uh, doesn't exist anymore, but they were, they were well known. Following down the River Derwent, looking towards Derwent Water, the route of Millican and his rafting crews, it would go on to Derwent Water and then the three-mile stretch from Derwent Water to Bassenthwaite, which he said was some of the best rapids in the Lake District. Now, I've been to uh, many of the dramatic places in the Lake District, the crags, places that I daren't tell my wife I've been to. I threaded the needle, the nape's needle, and I've stood on the dress circle, but I have not climbed it but Millican had a great attachment to it and it actually cut up to some uh, unusual antics on that pinnacle. That's right but Nape's Needle has seen many antics over the decades. We have for example Stanley Watson who climbed Nape's Needle blindfolded. We had Jerry Wright who scaled it in 65 seconds. We've had people doing handstands on there. However to mark Millican's 50th ascent to celebrate the occasion he pulled up a, a bundle of sticks, lit a fire up there and brewed some coffee and celebrated with a couple of woodbines. The following day to celebrate the 51st ascent with a friend of his, his friend shouted down to spectators in the dress circle that he was going to perform a stunt. He lathered himself and then had a shave up there as well, so you can just imagine it. And these were chest-thumping displays of manliness. 
You've just described these manly exploits on the top, but he was in, in many respects far more interested in equality. Yes, that's right. Millikan's adventure holidays were open to everybody. There was no gender inequality. This all stems from Millikan's involvement with social movements. He was an early member of the Fabian Society. That sowed the seeds for the British Labour Party. Part of the socialist ideals promoted equal rights for everybody, you know, for the, for the common person. So Millikan's holidays open to everybody women included, which in this day and age might sound unsurprising. unsurprising. So he advertised his holidays in votes for women and they also advertised in the suffragette. Now don't forget, this was a period well before women had the right to vote, which didn't come till 1918. This didn't go without any unconcern from the rest of society. Guardians of traditional values deemed his activities or his activities gave the potential for loose behaviour, and they didn't want to have any part with that. Millikan saw common sense, and he persisted with his mixed-sex camping trips. Before these trips, they would be, you'd class it as segregation. They'd be women-only trips and men-only trips. The Fallon Rock Climbing Club, just for example, they did have uh, women members. They were few and far between. Millian brought women into the outdoors. He, he levelled up that gender gap in the great outdoors, giving them as much rights to be out there as men. Millican would ask females, skirt detachable, take it off. And then he'd pass them a pair of breeches. He said, you cannot climb in a skirt, in a long skirt, and these were heavy, cumbersome skirts. He let them move as freely as, as men. And women on his camping trips, they wore breeches, uh, he very much related to people. He didn't have a partner. He never got married and he never had children, so um, he didn't leave a, a legacy in that respect. Nick Dalton, he was Millican's nephew. He said that he'd never had any girlfriends, wives or anything like that. Contradicting this a little bit was a chap called Paul Orkney Work. He said that his mother had had a short-term engagement with Millican, but she called it off because he smelt like a goat. So, uh, <laughs> so no, there was definitely no marriage involved. But, you know, he came close. Well, we are close to Goat Crag, which is the opposite <laughs> here, so that's fair enough. <laughs> I can't confirm this categorically, but I've found evidence of, let's call her a companion called Pixie Pool, who lived in a tent alongside a hut that he eventually built in Epping Forest. She followed him to his next place in Marlow Bottom, Buckinghamshire, so she was on the scene. Whether it went any further than that, we don't know. Women did look at Milken Dalton as a real gentleman of the hills. He had something about him. And I think this, this was based on the gender equality. He gave women the freedom. You know, this is about freedom for everybody. And he gave women the freedom in the outdoors. Well, I'm intrigued enough, like many people, to go and hunt for the famous cave. Fortunately, the foliage is down, so we'll uh, not be hampered too much, but there are trees involved, I think. Ah, that was some adventure. Matthew, in, in his love of Castle Crag, lured us to take what he described as 
the rough route. Well, I can heartily not recommend it to anybody. We are alive. Well, that's the best I can say. Lots of moss, lots of slippery rock, fallen trees. Uh, we came down from near the top of Castle Crag to the actual regular path, which leads uh, through towards Grange, well above the river. And then we branched up to two caves. The upper one is where we're now standing. This is not somewhere where people by dint of accident come. They have to really be hunting for it. So I'm grateful for Matthew to be pointing it out to us. How did you first discover this, Matthew? Well, I first discovered the story of Millican Dalton through, through my dad. He'd been reading Wainwright's Guides and it was, it was a chapter on Castle Crag and there was a small snippet about the Professor of Adventure, so I wanted to learn more, so I started doing a bit of digging, uh, which led to the research behind the, what turned into a book. I first found the cave. I did actually stumble across it, even though he said you wouldn't do it by dint of accident. I'd come with a friend looking for the cave. We were on the summit of Castle Crag, and then we thought we'd work our way down. We'd got to the point where we'd given up our search. We were walking away a bit dejected, and then all of a sudden we walked onto the cave's terrace, two terraces in front of the cave. We walked onto one, looked behind us. There you have it, the yawning mouth of the cave. It's an aqueous place with the water dripping down. It's quite an atmospheric little cavern. Uh, but Millican had been hunting for a place. After spending several years at Hylador, he soon got a bit tired of um, the wet weather, the wet Cumbrian weather, you know, which is, uh, we're near as the wettest spot in the country, aren't we, which isn't too far away. I think it's Styed, Seathwaid. So they started a search for a more permanent base. After scouring north and south Lakeland in around 1901, he first discovered this cave, which is on the eastern flank of Castle Crag. And uh, he just used it whilst the wet weather lasted. And then as soon as it dried up, he'd be back in a tent but later on, just before 1920, he moved in here full-time. He stayed here for three months every single summer, 50 years staying in this cave, Imagine. which is quite remarkable, really. I can't resist the actual process of going into that dark enclave where the water is dripping. You can see why somebody would adopt this. It's a hall. It's got a substantial roof, but it's well above your head height, so there's no ducking. A quite a generous community space. How did Millican adopt and use this space and practically? The cave is absolute luxury compared to life in a tent. As you described, there's ample space to do pretty much anything with an ear saw. Um, we've got two levels. It's a a split level interconnected cave. The upper tier was known as the attic and was host to guests and the lower cavern was where he did most of his business and uh, where he, he set up his living accommodation tight up against uh, the wall of the, the cave. He jokingly named it Aladdin's Cave or the Cave Hotel so there was a bit of humour had around that as well. When he gave up conventional living at that point, a campfire became his kitchen and the cold hard earth his bed. It was no different in the cave hotel. His bed was a cold hard slab of stone, 
made a little bit more comfortable by a springy bed of bracken. He didn't forget comfort altogether, though. I mean, unsurprisingly, for a caveman, he carried an eider-down quilt around with him, and that, that was his wondrous comfort, he called it. He had his little sleeping arrangement walled in with a small semicircular dry storm wall, and he equipped his cave full of Heath Robinson-esque contraptions. So we'd have bookshelves to hold um, packing cases and books and newspapers. We would have gadgets made from wire, salvaged from Grange Tip as all his equipment was salvaged. Pots and pans, you can hear the water dripping from the cave ceiling. That's where Millican collected his water in his pots and pans from under there. Make no mistake though, that was drinking water. He never washed, so you know, it, it was nothing to do with <laughs> ensuite facilities or anything like that. And he entertained his guests here uh, for hours and hours, often lost in deep conversation until they got carried away and they had to leave in darkness. He told the most wonderful ghost stories and many people tell about their experiences in this cave with Millikan scaring their wits out. But the, uh, the view out of the cave mouth is just amazing. I think we're at the narrowest point of the jaws of Borrowdale here, so you can just see the, um, the fell running up to the sky right in front of us. What was uh, his diet? At the age of 35... Millican became a vegetarian. I think this might have had a little bit to do with the concept of the simple life, but also a fan of the natural world, um, and the probably health benefits thrown in there as well. So he lived predominantly on fruit and nuts and wholemeal bread, which he made himself. And he made that by making a dough, maybe mixing a few nuts in and, and cooking it on basically a wire rack over his fire. And it was, it was said to be very tasty. He also had a lot of knowledge of wild edibles, so he'd go picking fruits and berries, which you get a lot of raspberries um, and blueberries growing in the valley, and he would also go and pick hazelnuts, which grow in abundance alongside the River Derwent, which he said were particularly tasty. He said he lived on the basics of life. Uh, was that totally true? Not exactly. He enjoyed copious amounts of very strong black coffee, which he sweetened with sugar, so much was added, rumour had it you could stand a teaspoon up in the cup. <laughs> and uh, smoking, he chain-smoked woodbines, and uh, it was said that he smoked every single woodbine as though he was inhaling oxygen. And once he started, he admitted he, he could never give up. But you know, he did say it helped him gather up steam for the day ahead. <laughs> when you look at the photographs of these, they're either making coffee or... Smoking. Every single picture, he's got a cigarette in his hand. Uh, and the landscape around Borrowdale was said to be littered with the remains of his campfires made purely to brew coffee. In your book, you have a, an interesting anecdote when he was here in the Second World War. In the summer of 1939, he came up to Borrowdale as usual, but he decided to stay here for at least the winter of 1940. 1941, I'm presuming that it probably extended for the full duration of the war. He moved in here and he got quite a lot of publicity at this period. He featured in the, the Daily Mirror and also on a news reel um, from the British Paramount News. It captured the spirit of the nation uh, who needed a bit of a lighter story, you know, considering the atrocities that were ravaging Europe. As plenty of people said, this was the best air aid shelter in Britain. How old was he at that time? 73. So he wouldn't have been uh, suitable for war service anyway? 
No, he would have been too old to fight, but he had an anti-war stance. He was uh, an anti-war campaigner. He didn't believe in any, any war whatsoever. He promoted peace. Of course, during the war, you were expected to black out lights in houses. Uh, hard to do that in a cave. Definitely saw, and Millican persisted with his fires and candles. However, one night, there was a air raid warden, Vikesic, was walking down the Borrowdale Road, and he noticed a glimmer of light coming from the cave on Castle Crag, so he had to walk up, and he came into the cave, and he shouted at Millican, put that light out. Millican didn't agree with it, but he extinguished the fire, and then he stayed in darkness. And don't forget, these were winter months, he stayed in darkness from half past four till 8am the following day. So he, he really did object to this, and he, he was so angered by it, he wrote a letter to Winston Churchill, oh. because it was interfering with his liberty. These are t the lengths that he took things to. I'm interested to go into the attic. You can describe that space to me. Now, just at the entrance to the attic, it says, etched on the south side, don't waste words, jump to conclusions. What's all that about then, Matthew? These were two of Millican's favourite sayings. So, during heated discussions or arguments with his friends, he would say, don't waste words, don't jump to conclusions. Now, there's a lot of debate about this inscription here. Is this the work of Millican Dalton? I'm led to believe not. His best friend and mentor was a guy called Reginald Ware, Reginald Ernest Ware, and he was rumoured to have engraved this with a hammer and a punch. And when you look closely, you, you can actually see that um, it's got punch marks on. Right, so it's really, don't jump to conclusions. It probably means as well, so it's implying the two things. Yes, yeah. Yeah, there yeah. you are. It's nice to have his actual words, even if it's written by somebody else. This actually might prove to be his one epitaph. Here, I find it very moving. Well, we've come out of the cave, we've had that reflection there. Um, so we're coming to the end of his story. He was 73 when he was here, and he was here for a few seasons. He changed his base, home base as well, down in the south. Several years prior, he'd moved from his camp within Epping Forest and his, uh, his base at Loughton. He moved himself over to Marlow Bottom in Buckinghamshire. His brother had moved there several years before, and he bought another plot of land, named it I Evans Camp, because I Evans would was just behind the, the site. And this was another plotland, and it was known locally as Shantytown or Tin Town. Again, people buying cheap plots of land to move into makeshift homes, really, you know, just a cheap option. Again, people escaping the mushrooming conurbations. There's a little bit of a, a pattern forming at this stage as one area started to get more populated, it uproot and relocate somewhere else but I think in this instance it was to be closer to his family it's quite a secluded valley and um, it, like I say he made home there with again similar people and Pixie Pool she relocated herself there as well so is there anything in that I don't know but <laughs> <laughs> they were certainly very close companions let's put it that way. It's lovely to know that there is that warmth. The 
tough winter of 46, 47. Where was he at that really bad winter? Milliken had continued his yearly trips between the summers in the Lake Districts and the winters in the south by leaving the cave at the end of summer 1946. It proved to be his last departure. He returned home and he was looking forward to another winter at I. Evans Camp. Anyway, he didn't know what Mother Nature had in store. He was faced with the coldest, harshest winter of the 20th century. And one night, his hut burnt down because he, he burnt fires within the hut, you know, so it was going to happen at some time. The hut burnt down, and then whether through stupidity, stubbornness, or a disbelief in his own abilities, he moved immediately into a tent. And there has to be some kudos to Milliken Dalton here, because this is a man that's 79 years old, still living outside in the harshest winter of the century. He stuck with it and stayed with it. Anyway, the weather, it was, it was too much for his ageing frame and his resolve. It was too hard to bide and he subsequently became ill and he ended up in Amersham Hospital where he was treated as an inpatient for several weeks and after failing to respond to treatment, he shuffled off this mortal coil. And there's a particular mystery about a book that he left by his bedside. Many years earlier, Millican had started writing A Philosophy of Life. That was the title of this book. When he died, the book lay incomplete by his bedside. After checking with the remaining family members, nobody knows the whereabouts of this, um, this piece of work, so um, there'll be no enlightenment of his knowledge or his worldly wisdom, unfortunately. It's quite a tragedy, really. One mystery about his book, but... Uh... The other one, the obvious one, is body. Was he buried somewhere? I've been scratching my head over this for quite a few years and I did contact his niece called Nancy. She was living in Alaska at the time, asking her where his remains were, but um, she didn't know exactly. It was either Chalfont St Peter or Chalfont St Giles, both in Buckinghamshire. I did contact the cemeteries in these villages. I could narrow it down, but I couldn't be... 100% about it so there's definitely a mystery there and can't find anything so he lived a life of publicity and then in the end he disappeared without a trace. Well his spirit lingers on here and almost anybody who knows about Castle Crag even if it's as a result of reading it in Wainwright knows about Millican Dalton. Well we'll get down to the main valley track before we actually talk about his legacy. We made our way to the banks of the River Derwent, flanked by trees all about us, and I could just see through the branches up to Castle Crag. We've uh, gone through Milliken Dalton's life to this point. You spent a great deal of time researching this man. He's become a tremendous pull to you. What is that pull? Well, the initial pull I, was... I just asked myself the question, why? Why would somebody choose to quit the job and drop out of the rat race. Why would somebody give up everything? Because he could have lived a, a comfortable life. He gave up everything to live this, this simple life. Why would somebody live in a cave? I was encapsulated by the 
outdoor life, the sense of adventure. It was something that hit a chord and I just carried on digging and digging, basically. That, of course, spurred you to actually experience it yourself in that wonderful cave that we've just been in now. How did you find it? I've spent several nights in there with friends, but I've also stayed there alone, which was a real eye-opener, really. We're not that far from civilization as such, but the sense of isolation and loneliness was quite eerie, really. This is the thing that really hit home to me. Imagine living this mode of life through 50 years. You've no home comforts, you've no real possessions. That would break the average person. Yet here we have a man that stuck with it and never looked back. He never appears to have changed his mind because he could have very easily gone back to conventional living. He stuck with it, he knew what he wanted, he'd found something in Mother Nature. He said, you cannot feel lonely with nature as your companion. So if that's your outlook, then he had everything he needed. So you would say there was a legacy? There is definitely a legacy left behind. I think most people, they make a connection with Millican Dalton because he does what the average person wants to do. How many people listening today would like to say, I'm quitting work... I'm going to do what matters to me, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be in the outdoors, it's, it's just the principle. For me, is a symbol of freedom. His legacy, it remains to this day. Keswick is known as the adventure capital of England. Keswick has Millican Dalton to thank for that. He introduced the activity holidays. He was well known in the social movement. His groundbreaking work with equal opportunities at mixed sex camping expeditions and his activity parties that narrowed the gender gap and his contribution to lightweight camping his contributions have never been acknowledged even to the present date apart from um, the scribblings in my book returning to yourself matthew do you think you would have liked him i would have shared plenty in common with millican dalton maybe not his political stance he had plenty to say about his socialist views apparently as he aged he became increasingly stubborn and argumentative but i would have i would give anything to go on an expedition with millican dalton so yeah i think we'd have had plenty to talk about and i would have loved him to show me um you know his experiences holidays so if you were therefore able to spend a day uh, with him uh, what would you hope to do with him? I would probably choose a day's tree climbing. He used to uh, climb the trees uh, with a rope and then he'd be swinging from branch to branch like Tarzan. That would be a complete different sort of uh, adventure for me, something that I've, I've never done and uh, you don't really see. There's not many people down uh, by the side of the River Derwent today swinging the tree, so I would like to do that and then let him cook me a camp supper. I think that would, that would round the day off nicely. Well, I'll enjoy one of his strong covers as well. <laughs> Journey's End, River Derwent in the background. We're approaching Grange in Borrowdale, lovely walk, still pretty cold. It's a nice winter's day, isn't it? And learnt a lot about this.
fantastically interesting gentleman. Well, he's an enigma, basically. I've, I've only ever vaguely heard about him, having not previously read Matthew's book. I've got every reason to read the new edition because I'm absolutely inspired, just as Matthew has been. This is a man who represents so much of what people long to have, that sense of connection, the fearless with nature. He was right at the birth of that whole idea and the fact that he influenced lightweight camping and clothing and equality, women and men were all the same. Wonderful egalitarianism, I think it's majestic. Yeah, I mean, he was ahead of the curve in so many fronts. You know, he's a vegetarian, long before the kind of movement really enters the mainstream. You know, he was around at that point. A pioneer of adventure holidays up here in the lakes. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. And, I mean, I would love to have gone on one of these holidays. Brilliant fun. Absolutely fabulous. So much of it is back to nature, back to the simplicity. Society has got to find more of that. Agree with you on that one, Mark. Will you be spending a night up in his cave at any time soon? Actually, as I now know, he was sleeping there when he was 73. And uh, next month is my 73rd birthday. No. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) The book in question, we will put a link on our website, but just a reminder of its title, Millican Dalton, A Search for Romance and Freedom by Matthew Entwistle. And as I say, we'll put a link on our website to where you can buy that new Uh, much expanded edition. I highly recommend it. It's a beautifully researched book. And uh, I believe, Mark, you first met Matthew many years ago at the Lakeland Book of the Year Award where he uh, had his book first published. His was mentioned, whereas mine wasn't, so... (laughs) (laughs) But there again, uh, he was writing about somebody and guidebooks, bah, they don't win book awards. Why should they? Irrelevant. Irrelevant. A guidebook is all about getting people out. Matthew's about inspiring people. Brilliant our regular housekeeping if you would like to support this podcast if you like what we do and would like us to carry on doing it you can do it in a number of ways you can buy some of our books on um, the country stride website countrystride.co.uk you can donate to us via patreon there's a little donate link on the website and for as little as two pounds a month which is less than a packet of woodbines, you'll be able to support (laughs) us. Or a strong coffee from uh, Millican. And we'd like to thank uh, recent supporters. So here's our list of those who've been kind enough to send a little bit of money to support this podcast. Richard Waller, Rob Andrew, Alastair Craig Harvey, Jill Swainston, David Wood, Peter Valley, Daniel Swain, Mervyn Rochester... And uh, some names here that I recognise. John and Helen Felton. That's my mum and dad rekindling my pocket money from <laughs> days of old. All those Thank you very much to all of you for supporting us. We've got a new guide coming out next month. We have got a new walking guide out next month, yes. The Oldswater Walking Companion. 88 pages, I think, of fabulous walks. Whoa, Can't wait. Um, we don't quite know what we're doing next, Mark, do Typical. we? Typical. Typically... Uh, yeah. It's this time of year. It is. It's, it's, uh, people are either coughing or they're doing something. They just uh, they've gone to ground. But we'll get some of them. They just don't want to meet up with us. <laughs> um, we're on social media, Mark. Oh, uh, at Countryside One, Facebook and Twitter. This is episode number seventy-three. 
So for all previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. And that's us signing off from just below the cave on Castle Crag that was home for just over five decades to the Professor of Adventure. We're saying goodbye from Country Stride.